This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Great to have your company this week for a conversation about the philosophy of identical twins. I'll tell you a fun fact about twins. There are more and more of them. According to a book I just finished reading, in industrialised countries, the twin rate has roughly doubled since 1980 due to the rise of assisted reproductive technology and the average age of pregnancy. So while twins are still comparatively rare and identical twins are a minority within that minority, you're increasingly likely to encounter them and maybe to be exercised in that encounter by the fascinating philosophical issues that are brought up by the phenomenon of identical twins. That book I just finished reading is titled How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins, and its author is Helena DeBress. She's a professor of philosophy at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. She's New Zealand-born, and she has a mirror-image identical twin sister, Julia, who provided illustrations for the book. I spoke with Helena DeBress this week. Twins are almost like a walking philosophical thought experiment. I think pretty much anyone who comes across a pair immediately starts asking themselves these, these deep questions about human existence, mainly to do with personal identity, probably, first off. You know, what is it that makes one person themselves rather than someone else? What defines the boundaries between individuals? Uh, there's also a question about how many people could be contained within a single body Um, or the possibility of, say, one person being spread across two bodies. So there's a question about, yeah, the boundaries of the self in terms of just how many people are in the room when you see a pair of twins. They often seem like um, they're somehow less than two people. Um, Another question is about the twin relationship. So uh, the nature of love, twins are an unusual kind of sibling relationship. And there are a lot of questions that arise about whether or not the kind of love that they share is an ideal one or an unhealthy one. Um, And then a very obvious one is about free will. Many people are thrown into a kind of existential crisis when they see a pair of twins who are very, very similar because they think that it shows that we have less freedom of action, that our lives are determined by our genes. So I'd say those are the big ones, questions about personal identity, questions about love and questions about the possibility of free agency. The identity and selfhood thing, I think, is really interesting. This question of whether twins are better understood as one person spread across two bodies or or two people somehow contained within the one identity. And we'll be getting into the philosophy of that a little further on. But I want to ask first, how is it with you and your sister, Julia? Like, in, in what ways are you different and in what ways are you the same or very similar? Yeah, we we don't look as similar as we used to now. Now that we're in our mid forties, we certainly were very uh, we resembled each other physically a lot when we were younger. Um, we have similar jobs. We're both professors. She's a linguistics professor. I'm a philosophy professor. We're interested in a lot of the same stuff. Um, we have the same taste in music and film. We tend to like the same people. So our preferences and our tendencies are very similar in those ways. But we're also quite different. I'm the introverted twin, the quiet one. She's the loud twin. Or well, sometimes she was called the bossy one growing up, which she resisted. Um, so we have different temperaments in that way. But I think we're increasingly, I've come to recognize that we're a lot more similar than maybe we felt than we were growing up in those other ways. You also have a a disability, both of you, a congenital disability. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that's an interesting one in that it raises some issues around selfhood and embodiment that we're also going to be getting into. But what's what's the deal there? 
Yeah, um, absolutely. So my sister and I have a medical condition called osteogenesis imperfecta. It's better known as brittle bones. So our skeletons are more fragile than the average human skeleton. We broke a lot of bones growing up. Um, and I talk in the book about how um, there's a, a parallel between growing up as a disabled kid and growing up as a twin um, in the sense that your body is weird, right? Um, disabled people have non-normative bodies for sure most of the time. Um, but twins are also odd just in the sense they're doubled. You know, they're anatomically odd because there's two very similar bodies right next to each other. Uh, and so in both cases, you get a lot of attention from uh, people who don't fall into those categories. You stand out uh, for physical reasons. And uh, yeah, as I argue in the book, uh, some metaphysical questions come up around that to do with uh, where it is that the self really resides. It isn't in the mind or in the body. So questions about our embodiment are brought up by twins just as much as they're brought up by people with disabilities. When you talk about your various points of similarity and difference, I mean, one's loud, one's quiet, one's an extrovert, one's an introvert, you, you share certain characteristics. I mean, what's interesting there is that what you're describing is a a mixture of sameness and difference that could exist between non-twin siblings, right? Or even just between friends, really. And it makes me wonder if perhaps the physical likeness between identical twins is really the thing that makes them special. And, and it's a specialness that is conferred upon them by observers, by other people, by non-twins. Do, do you think there's something in that? Yeah, I mean, I do think from the the singleton perspective, so uh, twins refer to non-twins as singletons. Uh, sounds a little too close to simpleton for the taste of some, but that is the technical term. So from the singleton perspective, it's true. I think the most striking thing about identical twins anyway is their physical resemblance. Um, but I think from the inside, if you are a twin, that's not the most important thing. Um, it does affect your life in a big way because you get a lot of attention as a result of it. But for twins, it's the relationship that really matters, uh, which is more about, yeah, how you're relating to your um, your sibling, your twin um, on an emotional uh, level. Uh, so I think it really depends who's asking that question. Right. But you say in the book that much of the experience of twinhood is determined not by twinship itself, but by the response of non-twins to it. I think that's really interesting. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. Um, again, you know, I, I don't like to press this point too far because I think it go in bad direction, but I do think twins are in a sense a social minority, right? Numerically, um, they're a small proportion of the population. And so they're kind of odd and anomalous and they share certain features with other social minorities. Not all of them. Twins don't tend to be oppressed. So I'm not trying to argue that. Um, but often when you're in a minority in the human population, a lot of what you have to deal with is the reactions of the majority to you, right? So, um, Again, to go back to the question of disability, um, the experience of being disabled is hugely affected by the reactions of able-bodied people to disabled people. And to a lesser and much, much less harmful extent, I think the same can be said about twins. Um, there's a relationship you have with this person who you're super close to often, which can be very important to you. And then there's this other relationship between you two and the rest of the world. You know, singletons are so fascinated by twins. So there's a lot of managing the reactions of third parties. That happens from a really young age. You see even your three-year-old or two-year-old twins playing up their twinhood, trying to kind of work around maybe to their own advantage, this fascination that is constantly directed at them. So yeah, you're, you're in this uh, couple, but you're also uh, dealing with other people's reactions to that couple all the time. 
When you write about cultural responses to twins, you talk about this weird tendency that we have to frame twins in terms of binary opposites, like there has to be the good one, the evil one, the loud one, the quiet one, whatever it is. It's a constant through literature and other kinds of storytelling. Why do you think we do that? Yeah, this is, again, I think twins are a very stark instance of a general human habit. So some of the things I talk about in the book um, are phenomena that you see in other parts of the human population, but twins bring to a really fine point. And this binarization phenomenon is just so clear in representations of twins and also in real life. People are always trying to work out, you know, which one is who. We're assuming that there's some spectrum and, and each of the twins is positioned at a very, you know, a stark end of it. Why do we do that? I think there's a bunch of different reasons. One is just the the general human need to impose some order on a confusing and unknowable world, right? We we want to try and um, give ourselves a little bit of guidance over the chaos we see around us. You see two twins directly in front of you. You don't know which is which. It's a stressful situation. And I think that there's a tendency to overcorrect. Like we're going to make sure that we really um, starkly define the identities of these people going forward so they're not so slippery. So I do think that's one big part of it. But twins do it to themselves too. They have to work out a way of forming their own identity when they're in a very close relationship with this other person. So I think that twins themselves have a need to to slot themselves into roles that are easily recognizable. Yeah, there's also a, a philosophical point there. I guess, about the making of meaning. Like we only know what something is when we can identify what it isn't. And so there you have, you're confronted with two apparently identical beings. It's kind of like you don't know either of them unless and until you can very, very starkly differentiate them. Yeah, absolutely. I I think you're right. It's a a general condition of meaning making. Um, You don't know what something is until you know what it isn't. Uh, So I do think that's happening here too. And, you know, there are obvious worries about binary thinking. I think we tend to focus on the bad parts of it. Um, Clearly, it can be really cramping. It's reductive. You know, no one can be cleanly positioned at the end of a a very simple binary um, sort of spectrum. So it can be bad. But I talk in the book about the ways that it can be useful, too. I know that it performs some really helpful functions for me growing up. Being able to compare myself to Julia, my sister, allowed me to get a sense of what was, you know, important to me, what my values were, what was distinctive, the kinds of role that I could play in the world. So having another option to kind of triangulate against, maybe triangulate is not the word, but <laughs> um, another option um, to to try and contrast yourself to is a way of forming you know, your sense of self. And I don't think there's anything inherently problematic about that. We're all social beings. We're always doing this kind of comparison. Yeah, I mean, it's something that you write about in terms of self-identification through a process of elimination, right? Just sort of framing the question, who am I as, as who aren't I? Who, who am I not? Yeah, and I do think when you're young, it's going to be a, a pretty, um, you know, not a super subtle process. And as you get older, you can start recognizing more of your twin, you know, more of the other <laughs> in yourself and have a more complex picture. But early on, you know, it's useful to have um, something to start with. And I think, yeah, knowing that my sister was the illustrator, I was the writer growing up, I was the introvert, she was the extrovert. Those things help me to kind of narrow in um, on who I think I genuinely am. I have been formed by my comparisons with her and other people, but I don't think there's something inauthentic about the sense of self that results. That's who you are. And I don't think you need to be worried about that. Mm. 
Yeah, my philosophical training leaned heavily in the direction of continental philosophy, and I was always admonished that binary thinking was was anathema. It was everything that was wrong with with culture and society could be put down to binary thinking, and. I guess, I mean, and this, this idea more that, you know, identity always carries the trace of the other, right? These are all these sort of continental philosophical maxims. And I suppose, you know, twins is, is, is a really nice illustration of that, where you are different from each other, but it couldn't be more clear that you each carries the trace of the other, right? It's a very, um, it's a very postmodern phenomenon, if you like. Yeah, I like that take on it. I think that's definitely true. Yeah, I'm in the more in the analytics school, um, so I didn't get absolutely drenched in that, but I'm certainly aware of <laughs> um, the whole idea of deconstruction. We're not supposed to like these binaries, you know. I mean, obviously some binaries are terrible. I don't want to, I'm no big fan of the gender binary, for instance. Um, so sometimes we really do lose subtlety and end up doing some horrible things as a result of being overly committed to one. But what I want to emphasize really is that this notion of the self as being essentially relational um, isn't something we should be afraid of. It's a theme in the book as a whole. Um, when we grow up in a Western society in particular, there's this idea that the ideal human life is one that's essentially an individual phenomenon. You know, you're this single agent, discreet from other people, pursuing your own aims, largely free of the influence of others. And that's just not an accurate picture of how any of us live. And I think twins are a really nice illustration of how you can be very, very close to someone to the extent that your sense of self is deeply determined by them and nonetheless be flourishing um, and, and having a healthy relationship. On Radio National and ABC Listen, this is The Philosopher's Zone. With me, David Rutledge, I'm talking this week with Helena DeBress, who's Professor of Philosophy at Wellesley College in Massachusetts and the author of How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. Let's talk more about the sense of self, because when you think about yourself, about about who you are, how stable is that entity? Because one of the things you write about in the book is how postmodern philosophy, quote unquote, has has posited the self as a kind of a fiction, or at least a, a construction, a, a radically fluid phenomenon with no center to it, no essence. Is that how you think of yourself, how you experience yourself? I think I'm more old school than that. Um, I, yeah, I do. Obviously, people can change over time. I think um, many people do change radically to the point where they don't seem to themselves or others like the same person over a period of time. So I don't want to rule out that possibility. But just speaking about sort of the, I guess, the phenomenology of my own internal experience, I do feel pretty stable <laughs> um, over time. Um, I think maybe humans just differ on that front. And Galen Strawson has talked about this. He thinks that really he has a kind of sense of himself as a unitary being for about three seconds, and then he flips into something else. Um, I feel like I've I've been roughly the same person <laughs> for quite a while. Others might disagree. Um, I do. I tend to think that people who are very, very committed to there being no kind of inner core at all are, are overcorrecting, but others disagree. There's also this question of the extent to which personhood or selfhood is something mental, intellectual, something that's grounded in in thought. And then on the other hand, you have the idea that selfhood is really uh, something embodied. And I mean, you write very interestingly about the way that embodied selfhood has been brought into very sharp focus for you by the particular disability that you have. So can you maybe talk about that, but also about 
how the experience of having an identical twin or being an identical twin also speaks to this this sense that selfhood is embodied. Yeah, I think growing up and even now too, I've tended to take a pretty intellectual, uh, you know, approach to my sense of identity. I tend to think of myself primarily as associated with my mind and underemphasize, you know, my physical self. And I do think that that's part of um, my history as being a disabled person. You know, if you've got a pretty unpredictable body, you're more likely to try and locate yourself in the less unpredictable part of yourself, which was my mind. So I've tended to think, yeah, I am my mind. And given that my mind seems to be separate from my sisters, um, then it was hard for me to think of myself as being somehow, um, you know, connected um, with her as a single unit. So the, the the question in that chapter is, if we start thinking about personhood as being not an exclusively mental phenomenon, but also being an importantly embodied phenomenon as we're encouraged to do so, um, what does how does that affect how we address this question about personhood in relation to twins. Uh, so my own thoughts have evolved on that question over time. Um, I no longer think that it is, you know, sensible to locate yourself solely in your mind. I think twins bring that question to a, a certain kind of point precisely because they seem to be um, two different kind of mental um, entities in different bodies, but bodies that are quite similar. So it's a complicated question. Is one way of thinking about it, or a productive way of thinking about it, to do so in terms of you know, personhood as a mixture of what you are and what you do, you know, the, the the mental and the physical, if you like. And so in that sort of deep ontological sense, you could say that you and your sister can be understood as sharing a kind of personhood or a degree of personhood, but then at the same time in a more material or corporeal sense, we're dealing with two people. Yeah, I think that's true. Like there are these amazing stories of um, the ways that twins can function as a single agent. Yeah, I definitely experienced that with my sister in a kind of um, not particularly dramatic, but important way. <laughs> when we were young, we would have lots of shared projects together. Um, we cooperated extremely well. We were very, very effective um, in, in pretty much any kind of joint activity that we had to engage in to the um, you know envy of singletons present. And there was a nice tale I read about a pair of um, twin painters who work on paintings together. And they just are painting continuously because one will paint during the day, fall asleep, hand over the paintbrush to his twin brother and the twin brother will keep painting. The twin wakes up, they see the painting. It's as if they have continued painting overnight. They just got a very similar style. So there's a sort of fluidity of action that you see in very close twin pairs. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think that it makes sense to, to see that as a, a genuinely shared form of agency. And again, you see it in other non-twins too, but twins are particularly good at it because they are so similar and they've grown up together from the very beginning. I have a very ambivalent response to that. I had a very ambivalent response to that anecdote in your book because, I mean, I guess there's a lot of tension around this notion of single versus double personhood and we're all driven in Western culture to think of ourselves as independent, autonomous beings, radically separate individuals. It's almost like a moral injunction. Your attaining adulthood is in some ways uh, an attaining complete independence from all the other people that you depended on as a child. Does your experience of identical twinhood sort of go against the grain of that injunction in a way that you sometimes find difficult or, or problematic? Yeah. Again, my own um, twinhood has been a relatively 
peaceful one. There hasn't been a huge amount of um, conflict. I don't get the sense that it's unequal in the sense that one of us is somehow dominating the other. But there are certainly twinships that do have that feature because that's the worry that you have. If you talk about merged um, personhood or merged agency, there's always this worry that someone's getting a better deal out of that merging. <laughs> you know, you see it in um, really unequal non-twin relationships. It's not always healthy to lose a sense of your boundaries in relation to another person if they're going to control you, right? So there are certainly some twinships where that happens. One twin is clearly the dominant one and one is submissive and it's not very good for the person at the bottom of the pile there. So it's a delicate balance. Yeah, I do think the weight in our culture is towards seeing the most important life as being a very individualistic one. So what I'm arguing in the book is that we need to question some of the reactions we have to twins that are based on that that norm. But at the same time, we don't want to go so far that we end up claiming that it's not important for people to have a sense where they they end and someone else's start. So it's a delicate balance we have to somehow work out how to do in a healthy way. You have a really interesting discussion in the book about objectification and how twins are used, culturally speaking, um, intellectually, artistically, in scientific, psychological experiments. Can you take me through some examples of how twins or the idea of twins is deployed by singletons? Yeah, in some cases it feels like a relatively benign way of exploring different um, possibilities. So one twin will often, as we were saying earlier, they get binarized. One twin will come to represent a certain kind of social ideal. In the case of female twins, it will often be the kind of virgin whore dichotomy. <laughs> so there are some films, film noir um, movies from the mid um, 20th century that um, play that up to great effect. Um, so you have the sort of, you know, the the hot evil twin and the, the frigid good twin. Um, so what you're seeing there is um, people are using twins to kind of um, think about ideals of femininity in a narrative form. So sometimes twins are used basically for intellectual purposes. Sometimes it's aesthetic. You know, um, we like seeing two different things paired. Uh, so sometimes it's just satisfying to see twins for aesthetic reasons. Other times twins get used in ways that seem to me to be more problematic. So uh, there's some very concerning experiments that have been done on twins and science, horrible ones at Auschwitz, but also some in more recent sort of more, more you know, less, um, I guess, large scale violations, individual experiments that have tried to tease out the nature nurture debate by separating twins at birth and raising them in different families without telling them. Um, so that that's exploitative. And you also see in freak shows, you'll see twins being used for entertainment entertainment in ways that seem to not be respecting them. Uh, so there's a spectrum, I guess, of uses, some of which seem relatively benign and others of which seem really horrifying. I talk in the book about how we could sort of work out which of those uses are, are problematic and which aren't. And it's it's a relatively complicated question. What's the experience been like for you of courting attention? Because I've I've known over the course of my life, I think four sets of identical twins, and they've all seemed to enjoy the attention and been apparently very happy to satisfy people's curiosity about the the wonders of twinship. And you, you have a nice anecdote in your book about how you and your sister did a sort of twin performance when you won a joint academic medal at the end of your college degrees. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, yeah. We always had very similar grades. Um, so we were both nerds. We won the humanities medal at the end of university. 
So they had to have both of us give the speech. Normally the person who wins the medal does the speech and there were two of us. So we decided we would just kind of lean into that opportunity. We did a speech where we alternated sentences. We used a lot of examples from different uh, representations of twins over time. Everyone loved it. You know, the whole hall was absolutely enthralled. So we knew that we were going to produce that reaction. We knew exactly how to do it. We've been practicing for years, essentially. So yeah, I think it's true that sometimes twins really just enjoy kind of playing up the the whole twin shtick um, for for the crowd. We definitely did that. You can also get tired of it too. I don't know if your twin friends felt this way, but sometimes you don't want that kind of attention. Um, and it can feel, again, as there's something creepy about it, especially if you're female identical twins. There's a long history of sexualizing and fetishizing female identical twins. So it can also just get very irritating. But it's a source of social power that twins will rely on occasionally. So, yeah, a social power that relies on them being different, which is a um, a mixed bag overall. Mm. It gets at that moral ambivalence that we have, um, in, certainly in philosophy, around objectification. You know, we have Kant's famous dictum that people should be treated as ends in themselves rather than as means to an end, which I guess stands as a kind of admonition against the objectification of others. But then certain kinds of objectification are valuable, um, even necessary, like you cite Martha Nussbaum's example of the kind of objectification that fuels sexual desire. So how do you determine which kind of objectification is morally problematic and which kind is okay? It's an interesting question because I think in um, in uh, sort of non-philosophical discussions, people often assume that objectification is necessarily bad, right? It just sounds bad. But I like Nussbaum's work because it opens up that question. It says maybe there are good and bad kinds. She ends up saying that what really matters is whether or not the person you're objectifying is being respected right the way through the interaction. Maybe on the face of it, it will look like there are disrespectful things happening. Um, but if it's happening within the context of a relationship, that's overall equal, maybe where the objective behavior is symmetrical. So one person does it at one point, the other person does it back. There's a sense that the relationship itself is actually morally fine and the behavior seen in context is not troubling. So you need to be a bit more subtle about it and ask yourself, what does this action or behavior really mean to those involved? And can we see, you know, if we look at a bit more broadly at what's going on, features that may not be apparent on the surface. But as a twin, when you, as you say, you sort of lean into that um, courting of objectification, as you did with the university medal that you won, but then you also mentioned there that um, there's this history of sort of carnival freak show, you know, twins being displayed in, in, in the worst kind of objectifying ways. So is there a sense for you that in courting the attention, you're you're really sort of playing with something which, I mean, you must feel a sort of ambivalence about that. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I try not to do it too much. I, I, you know, I, I think when I was younger, maybe I did it more. These days, I don't really like leaning into it because I'm more, um, I guess I'm more aware of the general context. Um, it's sort of when you think about the case of women and objectification, there are some helpful parallels there. I think, you know, sometimes it seems fine for women to lean into um, even the more troubling aspects of objectification temporarily for certain purposes. It's kind of like, why not use this thing that's been used against you occasionally? 
I don't have a problem with that in a limited way. But if you see women very often doing it, I do think there are these third party effects, right? There are other women whose own status is being um, problematically affected by you ramping up this generally oppressive situation. So I, I, yeah, maybe I sound a bit judgy when I say this, but I, I do think that people should be careful um, just how much objectification they lean into, uh, even just for the sake of other people in their social group setting aside themselves. Helena DeBrest, she's professor of philosophy at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, USA. The book is How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Available right now in the USA, but the publication date for Australia and the UK is April the 12th. And you can pre-order it via most major retailers or directly from the publisher, Manchester University Press. We'll put some links on the Philosopher's Zone website. Thanks so much for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. See you next time. 